What is up, everyone? <clears throat> Welcome back once again to season 16 of Pariah Nation. My name is Adnan Shafi, and I will be your host today. And today we're going to be discussing yet another topic that I don't think many Africans consider or they, they tend to think about because it's one of those truths that we've just come to accept over the last 60 years or so, depending on when your country got independence. <clears throat> So obviously we're going to be talking about the concept of nationalism and the concept of a nation state. And we all know that this is a concept and a system that is foreign to Africa. And I brought a, a very special guest um, who is quite familiar with the idea of nation states and he's looked into nation building in his classes and done additional research into that as well. But Mikhail, would you just like to introduce yourself once again for those new ones who don't know you? And again, you're one of those common people on this podcast. If you don't know Mikhail, then you're not a true Pariah Nation fan. <laughs> Let's hear from you, Mikhail. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Mikhail Nyamoya. Uh, I'm a final year student at uh, Nairobi's United States International University, Africa. Um, pursuing an undergraduate degree in international relations. And so I'm very happy to have the opportunity to speak on this topic of nationalism in Africa. So I'm looking forward to offering you know, unique insights into this particular issue. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much once again, Mikhail, and welcome to the podcast. But without further ado, guys, let's get into it. And <clears throat> let's look at even, let's maybe even start off with pre-colonial Africa. And if we look into pre-colonial Africa, what we find is a plethora of different systems that are around so in some places, for example, in East Africa and some, <clears throat> some areas of West Africa, you'll find sultanates. Like, for example, you have the Malindi Sultanate and you have the Zanzibar Sultanate. <clears throat> and most of these were connected to the Ottoman Caliphate. Um, <clears throat> or at least they had pledged allegiance to uh, the Ottoman Caliphate. Or sometimes they'd just also be freestanding. So that would be their own form of legal systems, their own laws. And these were things that they just sort of come to agree by themselves, or they'd have their own sort of value system to decide that. Then you also had <clears throat> another type of archetype of governance, and that was the system of kingship. So if you look at, for example, uh, different communities like that of the Buganda, they had a very hierarchical system. And that, you could describe it as somewhat something to do with kinship as well, but you can also equally say the same for kingdoms such as the Mali Empire, which was a dynasty, basically, if you think of it that way, just basically, <clears throat> you'd have people from the bloodline uh, would be the kings mainly. So you, you also have, you know, chief chieftainships, you have all these different systems, but none of them was really a nation state as we know it. Borders weren't really something that was static. They were always changing and they would either change through the institution, mainly through the institution of war especially in the historical phase when there's no UN, there's nothing like that, right? So, Mikhail, just, could you get, just explain to us very briefly how this idea of the nation state, first of all, what it is, and also how it came to Africa uh, from the pre-colonial phase and then obviously the colonial phase, like what happened so that they can introduce this nation state idea? So I would like to argue this from an international, an IR perspective, um, there was a war in Europe that lasted for 30 years, and it was a religious war. It was known as the 30-year Europe, the 30-year War of Europe. That was, I think, from 16, 1618 to 1648. And um, after this war, um, different, you know, current nation states sat, and they agreed to signing a treaty. This treaty was known as the Treaty of Westphalia. And this particular Treaty of Westphalia is the basis for the modern nation state system. So coming down, trickling down to Africa, uh, the nation state system was adopted during this scramble and partition of Africa. That was 1884, 1885. So African borders were actually drawn at that particular time as a consequence of the scramble and partition for Africa. And uh, boiling down to now around 80 years later, many African countries um, regained independence. 
and after regaining independence, they regained independence under the umbrella of the nation states that had been drawn during the scramble and partition for Africa. So you see, um, I could argue from the front that our current, our modern nation state system was actually drawn during the scramble and partition for Africa. And that um, the identities that we currently have are as a consequence of this particular scramble and partition. So that's just the historical context in brief that I can be able to give concerning the modern nation state system, especially in relation to Africa. Yeah, and I think that, <clears throat> first of all, thank you so much for the introduction. And I think it's important for us to, to recognize <clears throat> the concept of the state, first of all, the nation state and its implications. Because if you look into the literature, you can basically trace this idea back to Europe. So even these ideas of having borders that are based around language and based around culture, <clears throat> right? This is what they actually used to do. Or not even just that. They used to just say that, okay, you know what? Um, we're able to, let's say, have these people have these particular similarities and they're best suited to have this nation, right? So they decided that, I mean, sometimes it was, it was language. <clears throat> For example, in France, basically almost everyone speaks French. Then in Switzerland, you have people who speak Swiss German as well and Swiss French as well. <clears throat> and Switzerland is a bit of like an anomaly there. Countries like Germany, you can easily point to countries and just say that they speak this language, right? It's very easy to do that. But now when you point at a country like Nigeria, for example, <clears throat> right? Where obviously there are some other languages that are more dominant but the ethnic diversity in Nigeria is so complex. <clears throat> and if you actually look into, for example, the way different empires existed in the past, what they would do is that they'd have some sort of autonomy. They'd have like a kingship or whatever, and they'd have certain villages that would pay tribute yearly or like a tax, right? or like a land tax or something like that. So already we see like this different sort of systems forming based on cultural norms or based on you know, solving your own particular issues. So here was my issue with colonialism and how the nation state came to Africa. <clears throat> There's no issue with saying that, okay, you know what, we have specific needs as a group of people, or we have these particular similarities, we'd like some more autonomy to be able to govern ourselves. But when it comes to colonialism, <clears throat> those borders were drawn arbitrarily. They were drawn based on resource extraction, and sometimes were even drawn in order to divide and conquer, basically, right? Yeah, and without regarding, without regarding the culture of the people. Exactly, perfect. Because the thing is, if you actually look today at certain ethnic groups, I'll give one example of one ethnic group that has been split up between two countries, the Maasai of East Africa. Now, my question is, as a, Maasai, as a Maasai person, right? Because actually I've even driven to this place in Maasai Mara where it's literally, you drive to Tanzania basically because the border goes through the park. Then now you're in the Serengeti, right? <clears throat> as a Maasai person, are you more likely, the, the thing is the only thing that's separating you from the rest of your tribe is a border, an artificial border, by the way, that was not drawn by your people. It was not drawn by any other tribes. It was not drawn by any sort of conflict between your tribe and another tribe. It was drawn by white men sitting in a fancy office in Berlin, basically. That's what they're doing. What connects you more? The culture that you share between you and the Maasai on the other side of the border or that border and your, the rest of the people living within those borders, right? For me, it's like you have a, a more of a right to even just be like, you know, I'm more Maasai than, for example, either Kenyan or Tanzanian. And for me, people obviously get very like, you know, uncomfortable with this idea. But even I've asked myself, <laughs> why am I a Kenyan, right? What is Kenya? Kenya is a social construct. <laughs> Borders are social constructs, right? The only difference is, the reason why I say, and I mentioned it is a social construct, is because Kenya's literally lines that were drawn by other people. For, for some other people, for example, even in the Northern Frontier District, they don't consider themselves Kenyan. Some people don't. They're like, okay, I'm Somali, right? 
or even some people you know living in those western sort of districts they might be like actually i feel more ugandan than kenyan but even that concept of i feel more ugandan or whatever it's like it's more based on location and less about the names of the countries and the borders that were actually drawn i want to hear your opinion on this though no actually what you're saying is right huh? because i'm also just like what you said when you were discussing pre-colonial africa I was I was reading I was reading some literature on pre-colonial Africa a month ago and I came to the understanding that um communities did not exist as how we we are right now ethnically people claimed um origin to one particular ancestor and by virtue of this as well um they shared the same language they shared the same culture the same heritage then now someone comes and says, um, people from this particular area seem to have, not really exactly having, but they seem to have the same language, the same culture. Although these languages, you can tell that there's a difference, but there's something about them that looks the same. So what are we going to do? We're going to draw a border because it's obvious that these people and now these other ones in this other side seem not to be sharing in anything. So that forms the basis of us drawing that border, you see? And so eventually what I realized was that many communities who, you know, coexisted together as having a common ancestor, um, having a common language, common heritage, the only differences that they had with their neighbors was in terms of resources such as, um, you know, water, um, pasture, and they were engaging in something something called wars of conquest but never was it about oh i am a kisi oh i am a kalenjin so both of us shouldn't have to see each other eye to eye no <clears throat> now when the white man came he eventually realized that there are actually differences between these people and uh what are the, what are we going to do in some places they decided that these two communities can't keep fighting. So what are we going to do? We're going to create a buffer. So we are going to settle in between them. And that really doesn't make sense at all. Because after they left, when they left after independence, these two communities eventually came back where these things happened. These communities actually went back to fighting each other. So you can actually see that this actually aggravated the situation. So in that particular context, um, I really find that colonialism actually has a very, very big role to play because it wasn't about me being from this particular community and this other person being from this other community. Therefore, we have to fight. No, it would have been because of we want to expand our territories. Um, we are fighting over our land or land to graze our cattle, um, where to get water. But now I don't understand why after the colonialists left, it was more of an affair about, I'm from here, you are from there. Therefore, we can't see each other eye to eye. That really tells you that who, that really tells, that really shows you where the problem, the problem really came from. <clears throat> yeah, no, and I, I wanna just put this into perspective for people. It, I, I'll just give an example. <laughs> So I was in high school one time. <clears throat> I remember there was a science experiment that we were doing. So you had to throw some, like a metal square <clears throat> out onto the field. And then you just had to like count some certain things. So you're basically throwing a random, you know, looking square-shaped metal piece. <clears throat> and you're throwing it on a piece of grass. And that's the area that you're going to like examine or like experiment on. For me, that's literally how they draw borders. They literally just said, okay, you know what? This is suitable for us. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to draw over here. And then this idea of like, you know, you have to have some sort of sign that this part or this part of the land is yours. I'll even give one example. There was a Fashoda incident in the 1890s between the French and the English deciding over who actually owns a part of the Sudanese border. So you see, like this, these borders were not <clears throat> taken, they're not taking into consideration the needs of the local people. And if you look at other examples, <clears throat> right, even after the war, I think this is the one thing that we need to realize is that even during World War I, that's when things started to change. For example, if you look at Cameroon today, 
what there is a difference between you know the french the anglophone side and the francophone side and there's actually people that want to succeed and actually this is my theory and it's probably not even just a theory it's probably just a fact <clears throat> is that a lot of the cases that we're seeing that have to do with secession can be drawn with a straight line back to colonialism and i find that extremely problematic because it once again brings up this issue of borders. I remember even one time Mombasa wanted to, I mean, succeed into its own, uh, you know, its own particular, you know, uh, nation state, right? So it's all just really jumbled up and they decided to put people together. They decided to split people apart. But I also want to discuss how they brought together nation states and how they structured them. Because for me, it's very worrying. <clears throat> if you look at African countries today, in almost, and like mark my words, because I'm pretty sure this is the case in most countries that were colonized, you will have states where there is an ethnic group that has been either favored or has been trampled upon by the colonizers. And sometimes you even have a more complex situation where you have one ethnic group that's been favored, one foreign ethnic group from a different continent or whatever, that has been installed into the country, um, like as a middle class or something like that, then you have a working class. It's literally installed just like that, right? So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> so one of the examples is obviously, you can even use Kenya as an example, but if you wanna look at political class, guys, I'm telling you, if you look at countries that got independence through negotiations, there is one ethnic group that will dominate the political class. That's period. Like in most cases, that is actually what's going to happen. And if you want to look, I keep using Uganda as an example, but Uganda, the Buganda, uh, the Buganda uh, tribe obviously was fighting against the Bunyoro. The British decided to support the Buganda and the Buganda also said, okay, you know what, we'll help you in your colonial conquest if we're able to win this war against the Bunyoro Katara. So they actually received a lot of land, right? They were able to get cattle, they were able to get land and guess what? they were actually collecting the colonial taxes for a considerable amount of time. So you have a nation state that is not only primed upon a colonial structure and the borders that it came with, but it is based on divide and conquer, right? So even if you wanna discuss Kenya right now, for example, you can point to certain families, right? <clears throat> that have access to political power that, that and they, mean, they mainly come from certain tribes. Right? And sometimes you can actually connect that straight to colonialism. Even for Cameroon, as I've just mentioned, for them, it was just simple as Cameroon used to, Cameroon used to be a German colony. And obviously now the French and the British decided, okay, you know what, we're going to just split it in our own way. Right? And the same thing for Namibia used to be its own form of uh, German colony, etc. Things changed. So it's really important to not just look at the borders, but these these social systems that also came with them were biased and they were based on a colonial structure which is inherently oppressive. Yeah, and I would also want to, want to add to what you just said. Um, when I was writing my senior thesis, um, one observation that I made was that um, so many structures that were there, especially towards on the eve of, the, of independence, for some reason, were actually morphed into the post-colonial nature of the African state. Because I think there's something you've mentioned about, um, you know, families wanting to um, consolidate their positions in power. And um, I was reading this book by a lady called Michelle Arong uh, a while back, um, known as It's Our Turn to Eat. And her thesis was that every regime that ascends to power or less has its own motivations to eat. Why? Because at some point it felt really it felt really sidelined in the previous administration. And now that they have assumed power, then they will do everything it takes so as for power not to leave their hands because they know what will happen if power leaves their hands. What will happen? Um, one, uh, we are going to be oppressed. Um, our relatives are not going to be given jobs. Um, we are going to be harassed. Um, opportunities will go to the other people. So that is why you see like every new regime. And this is why I always have 
I'm always very bitter with the so-called African nationalist leaders because if it were not for them, then we couldn't have been having these problems that we are having right now concerning um, this particular family. We are talking about families 60 years down the line that are the ones who are owning three quarters of assets or properties within the country. So I, I really don't know. I really don't know what to say about African nationalist leaders because I believe that this problem started somewhere and actually someone who was, who was a quote unquote custodian was actually the one who really aggravated the, the situation. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I'll even discuss that a bit further, <clears throat> but now it just related to this idea of class stratification. <clears throat> if you look at East Africa as an example, for for example, <clears throat> you look at mainly people of Indian origin, they came as indentured servants to build the railway, <clears throat> but some also came as business people. And one of the main purposes of the British actually doing that was to create a buffer class or to create a merchant class <clears throat> that they could have more privileges. And it acted as a form of divide and conquer. And the thing is, if you, I mean, actually I did a study on this and I looked into the studies of segregation and I was looking at the, the city planning of Nairobi, for example, in relation to how it was back then. And you'd be so, so surprised that the white owned areas or the mainly white areas, for example, you have Karen, Lavington, et cetera, right? If you look at those places today, the property value compared to other places, right? You'll actually see that those, were, those are where most of the valuable properties are. So even geos, like from a geographical like angle, the way the state has been designed, it is already having some form of bias, right? For example, who even decided that, oh, it was Nairobi that's going to be the capital city? Like, you know, it was so arbitrary, right? Even, for example, you can also draw like, you know, a straight line from the countries that are, I mean, the, the counties or not even the counties, the cities that are the most, in quotes, developed from an infrastructure perspective, they also have close links to that colonial era. So if you look at where the railway passes, for example, the two main cities in our case would be Nairobi and Mombasa, <clears throat> right? And you can obviously figure out why that is. Mombasa is a port, right? And obviously after the building of the Suez Canal, that became very, very useful. Because if you're going from Mombasa, just using the Red Sea, all the way up Egypt, then you go through the Suez Canal, right? <clears throat> so now literally not even just that, if you look at also the ethnic demographics, for example, <clears throat> funnily enough, yeah, Westlands and Parklands used to be where Indians were supposed to live. And then Africans were supposed to live in other areas, right? And if you look at, for example, those white owned areas, for example, now those ones are literally the most valued properties. So for me, that's just very, very, very insane because with 60 years on and those factors are still having an effect on our daily lives and the, the way our state has been structured. And another thing also you'd like to notice is that um, there's also something we call the pattern of settlement. Um, I want us to take three, three upper class suburbs in Nairobi and make an observation. Let's take Karen, let's take Runda, let's take Kileleshwa and Lavington. Um, next to Karen, or not so far from Karen is Kibera slums, or the Kibera slums rather. Next to Runda, is another set of slum known as Gidogoro. When we proceed to those sides of Kileleshwa and probably even, even Westlands, um, there's, there's a Kawangware slum just next to there. And you can see that before independence, um, these were actually informal settlements of people who are actually providing unskilled labor in these um, upper class settlements which were initially, what just as you've said, white-owned property. And I don't know, I think this is a crisis of capitalism because in other parts of the world as well, I was looking at even South Africa and realized that 
there is always a slum near an upper class settlement. And it is usually said that these particular areas are usually insecure, any place that is near this slum, because um, it's not a must that all of these people are providing manual labor in these particular settlements, but some of them come to the city with the hope that they're going to get jobs. And they find that that is that is that their dream is likely to be jeopardized. And so what do they do? They result to crime. So you can see this ripple down effect from providing labor to the whites before independence. Um, this has now morphed into now providing unskilled labor in these posh settlements. Um, on the other hand, we are seeing that if there is no, what do we call it, if there is no um, promise of a job, you now seek to engage in crime. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually such a, it's such a good point. And what's crazy is that you can literally draw a line. On Google Maps, if you go to any of these places, you can literally draw a line and that demarcates the wealth disparity <clears throat> between, for example, as you said, you know, Karen, those Langata areas and Kibera, you can literally draw a straight line or you can draw at least like some form of like a curve, right? To show where the wealth disparity begins. And obviously I'm not saying that this, that the Kenyan government or, you know, corruption over the course of the last 60 years, I'm not saying that hasn't done anything. Of course it's had a insane effect and it's worsened the conditions for many people. But at the same time, I find it very particular that the areas that are still considered high value in terms of property value, et cetera, why they, almost all of them have connections or were owned by, for example, the you know, British settlers. For example, I think Labington was actually owned by the Catholic church. The entire part yeah, of Labington yeah, was true. owned by the Catholic church, right? <clears throat> so, and that's why also you, can, you find a lot of churches as well here as well. Some of them actually, they have a history or like, you know, the land was either like, you know, given uh, like, you know, downwards to like, you know, someone inherited that land, et cetera, church was built on it, et cetera. But also I think if we look at state design, since, we, since now we're moving on to like, you know, discussing the design of the state itself. If we look at the educational level of people, when you begin, for example, you have working class people in this case, it would be Africans. And the thing is, you can draw like you can draw very accurate lines or lines of intersection between race and class, especially very close to the uh, beginning of independence. And if you look at the working class, it was mainly Africans. If you look at the middle class, it was mainly Indians. And then upper class people were usually political titans, right? And these were usually from a certain ethnic group, which for me is just mind boggling as well. Right. Yeah. But obviously those things, those effects stack up. So when they gave us independence, it's not like they yeah. didn't know, by the way, it's not like they didn't know. Right. And which yeah. is why, by the way, you actually see places like um, you see places like Rwanda, what unfolded with the genocide, certain ethnic groups were given or they were placed above like one another, basically. One ethnic group was given favors, the other one was oppressed by the other one, right? <clears throat> and also like by the British, the one, uh, sorry, the, the colonizers, the one who were like, you know, orchestrating all of this, right? So in the case of Kenya, it was the British that was actually orchestrating this class divide. And even in Uganda as well, which is why, for example, you saw people taking radical, crazy, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, roots to be able to try and sort out that issue in Uganda when Idi Amin decided that oh you know what we're going to like kick out all Indians so that was one of the main reasons why <clears throat> is because they were installed as a merchant class I personally don't agree with it but obviously um, if you want to discuss like you know complex social issues <clears throat> in Africa especially you can't discuss it in a vacuum you have to discuss it in the form of either ethnic separation etc um, not separation sorry <clears throat> if you discuss in the form of ethnic differences and obviously differences in wealth and also race differences and race differences in wealth as well so i mean uh that'll you know for me that's what i'll just say about kenya specifically uh and like you know race and class but do you have any other examples 
Actually, you've mentioned something that I, have, I forgot to talk about and I think I'm going to talk about it now. Um, yesterday and the previous night, I've been watching what was called a documentary on Netflix called How to Become a Tyrant. And uh, you've watched it as well, yeah? Uh, yo, that was such a good, that was a very, very good documentary. <laughs> very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. And um, I was particularly interested in uh, Idi Amin. And uh, I was actually keeping this podcast, the today's discussion in mind as I was watching him. And this is how he managed to pit the Ugandan people against, against the Indians. That was, it was in 1972, around the 1972-73. And um, this showed me what actually nationalism in Africa can do, because there is no much difference between what Hitler told the Germans and what Idi Amin managed to convince the Ugandans concerning the Indians. Um, it was more of a us versus them problem. You see, it was us versus them. So we Ugandans cannot, um, should not be, should not tolerate these people here because of this and that and that and that and that. And people become aware and they're like, oh, by the way, really, these guys have to leave. Then what happens? They eventually left. Shortly afterwards, their GDP takes a nosedive for the next, I think, three years. So you one can see that, first of all, um, appealing to the people in the sense that we are from this particular country and the reason why we have these problems is because of this particular group of people who came here 70 years ago and they have to leave. Now you can see Africans, in, 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 the, in the most African sense, the spirit of Ubuntu is more about welcoming. So Ubuntu is all about welcoming other people, um, welcoming them, sharing with them, and they can always feel at home with us. But now you can see someone else has come up with another idea of showing people that we are this type of people and now we need to expel these other people because they're the cause of our problems. So you can see, like if you argue from that front of nationalism versus Ubuntu in this particular context, then you can see clearly what is bringing us problems in that particular regard. Yeah, and the thing is, just even to go a bit deeper into it, I think my main issue with what Idi Amin did <clears throat> is that you can't solve a social issue by just taking one swing at it. Like, that is such a complex problem, right? And for me, it's not like you can just kick Indians out and say, like, oh, now everything is going to be fine. For me, there has to be, first of all, be a process, right? And, like, it should only be those who have, like, offended or like, let's say they were aiding the colonial government, right? That they should actually uh, be put to trial, right? And they, for me, due process is important. I don't care what anyone says, by the way. I really could care less. Due process for me is paramount because if you don't have due process, then you can arrest anyone uh, for anything without any evidence just because you feel like it. And you can do whatever you want with them. And that applies to innocent people too, because if the law has to apply, it has to apply uniformly. This is basics of rule of law. So, I mean, this is, I mean, I was having a whole entire uh, discussion about this in my comments. Uh, like, I think it was a month ago when I talked about Idi Amin and that policy. But for me, I was just telling people that, um, especially when it comes to resources, like we have to realize we got the rough end of the stick when it came to independence. And the, one of the main issues actually was that the initial generations or the first you know, generations of presidents and leaders, a lot of them unfortunately did not address that issue. I think with the exception of someone like, yeah. I think the with the exception of someone like Mugabe, but obviously even that one was like, the, there were a few issues with that, right? Especially yeah. in regards to the, the larger like, you know, economy, et cetera, right? But I think that they needed to find some sort of way. If you're getting rid of dissidents, right, or supporters of the colonial government, just be strategic, right? And not only that, you have to have long-term solutions. You can't just say, okay, now we're going to take all the resources back and then um, we're just going to give it to people, for example, who may not be educated about the certain workings of whether it's a farm or whether it's a business, etc. right? So if you're taking care of those people, 
right, that have been benefiting off of African land, those ones you can kick out because to be fair, they're invaders, right? <clears throat> so for example, if you have white settlers who are just there, right, and they're like, you know, they've been oppressing the Africans, etc. why are they there? Why are they there, right? That's the, the major question. And for them, it's like, that's actually, you're committing a crime. Technically, we have the right to deport you, right? <clears throat> so if you want to now discuss long-term solutions, that was where I feel like they failed. If you have to solve that sort of issue like there, please solve it before it becomes generational because now the situation becomes so much harder to fix. I mean, like, well, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's actually true. <clears throat> you know, um, and that is why it's always important to surround yourself with people who will be able to make um, decisions from an informed, an informed perspective because on your own accord, we'll wake up and say, um, all of these people have to leave. But just as you've said, um, what really have they done? Have they oppressed Africans? Fine, they have to go. Um, have been, they been supporting dissidents of the government so that you're overthrown? Yes, now they have to go. But clearly, especially in the Indian community in Uganda, for the Indian community in Uganda, I don't necessarily see why they would have to go if they've been contributing a large amount to the economy. And, uh, you know, um, you don't have any clear procedures of how they should live. So, you know, that really shows that your leadership is full of, is, is quite impulsive. And that will also always have um, repercussions at the end of the day. So I think, I think and, and you also see one other thing they need to consider. One thing that that documentary was saying was that, um, many people didn't know where they would go back to because many of them have been there for like six, seven generations. So that's actually a place they technically call home. And then another thing is, and that brings us to the discussion we had on Pan-Africanism, that who really makes an African? Is it your skin color? Um, is it where you were born? Um, is it by just the fact that you are African? Because many of these people who have been born into the fourth generation here could actually could are arguably Africans. So telling them to leave actually doesn't really make sense because they, some of them even identify as African. So telling them to go back, basically you're raping them off their identity. Yeah, for me, I think it's one of those touchy things because <clears throat> I acknowledge that the privilege was literally it was unearned roughly because like the thing is you have a business but who are you competing with if the british are the ones who've opened that path for you that was my main issue so now if you come down to the the indian community in uganda for example the british have installed them as we mentioned that biased sort of state design that you're looking for many of them did actually oppress africans so that's why that's what i'm saying when people when i made that video a lot of people misunderstood <clears throat> right? I'm saying that obviously there has to be due process, like what are you doing? How are you treating your workers, etc. And then also, I think he, the, the, uh, another lead issue is like when it's generational. For me, it's like, personally, if you're not racist, <clears throat> right? And you're not someone who is like in support of the colonial government. And uh, let's say you're even like a kid, for example, because like, a lot of them were actually kids, they actually went to the UK, places like Leicester, Birmingham, etc. Uh, when they were deported. <clears throat> so here's the thing, if you're not in those categories, you're not offending, you're not doing any crimes, you're not causing any corruption in the country, right? If you're not perpetuating racism um, and you also accept that your privileges are unearned, like I don't see what the issue is, right? I mean, in terms of you staying there and us, for example, doing proportional taxation or like a form of just, you know, redistribution of resources, et cetera, um, just so we can be able to deal with uh, the poverty levels, etc. Obviously, it might you'll be like, oh yeah, it hurts the business. Yeah, obviously, it's going to hurt the businesses, right? Because you're if you're going to do that form of taxation, or at least you're, if you're going to be demanding tax, if you're demanding tax, you're going to be demanding it from the largest corporations, right? If you increase that sort of taxes and you start to distribute it to people, you know, the wananchi, at least the people who are uh, actually struggling and were impacted the most by colonialism and organizing, for example, things like educational programs so that there's a bit of more of a class balance. That for me is actually something that sounds fair, but you literally, you can't just pull the cord like that. It's like, you know, the way they tell you, 
like you know uh when you're shutting down your computer or whatever like or you, when you're shutting uh shutting down something like you don't just pull it from the mains others you could end up like mm. wrecking the entire machine so for me yeah. i feel like that economically it wasn't wise but that's not the the biggest concern right the biggest concern is that there was no due process that's my my biggest ick yeah you know yeah you looked at it as a one off event and always in everything there always has to be a process because I realized when you look at things from a one-off event like securitization, like regional integration, if you look at end elections, if you look at them from a perspective of a one-off mm-hmm. event, then then it's going to be very likely that things are going to fail. Things are going to fail because there were no bureaucracies, there were no decisions that were made um, from informed perspectives. But once we just we start and say that. Um, this needs to be done without any consultation, then that becomes a very hard sell. Yeah. And even, I mean, perhaps we can even just mention like, because this part of the podcast, we're just focusing on like, you know, how do we deal with these systems, the the state design that we've been left with? Because even for Kenya now, like how do you, that's such a difficult question, even for city planners, like how do you fix city-based or like, you know, settlement-based segregation that is is basically influenced by colonialism and perpetuating uh perpetuating uh natures of like you know poverty uh that sometimes were obviously uh worsened by things like corruption and you know economic downturns etc that's a difficult question to answer so even for example like i mean i was hearing that you know um <clears throat> they they can't the government can't even really intervene in some of these areas where the slums have been built because it's private land but how do you sue the people how are you going to sue people who are living on that land? How are you going to evict those people, right? And like, you know, all these big questions just come about, about how did they even end up owning that land privately? How did people even get onto it? It's just such a complex situation that's going on in Africa right now and in so many different countries. And for me, I think we discussed this last in the last two weeks about what, what is happening in South Africa. My goodness, is South Africa in a tough situation? Because the wealth divide is so clear right? And you can connect it to apartheid. You can literally connect it to apartheid. You can connect it to the different class stratification that exists there. You can connect class and race just like this, right? So, I mean, for, for, for people, I mean, like, who are asking, like, you know, then what are you suggesting that we do? I mean, for me, it's like, you have to, you just have to start from grassroots, and you have to look at long-term solutions. That's the best I can actually give you right now because I don't give any answers that are based on an entire continent with so many countries, so many different situations. But even just this whole concept of like, you know, nationalism, et cetera, and identification, identity, et cetera. For me, I mean, I'm just a Kenyan by nationality because I happen to be born between some, some lines that someone drew hundreds of years ago. You get what I'm saying, right? So all these... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like, honestly, like for me, it's just like I identify with other things like on a, on a higher level <coughs> compared to me just being like, for example, like a Kenyan by nationality. Because for me, my identity is so much more multifaceted than just like, you know, that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, even for like state design, what I would just say as we close off is for me, it just has to do with, we have to just sort of just buy, buy, buy our own form of time and just like wait it out. <laughs> like there's not much we can do. I think the, the organization of African unity also accepted the borders, which um, to an extent, I think it was also a good decision. I mean, I tell people we're accepting these borders out of necessity because if we don't, then we're going to go into war of conquest again, for sure. Like for sure, like I'm telling you, if we didn't accept the borders, then we would have definitely had wars of people trying to take certain pieces of land. So as we close, and then I'll hand over to Mikhail to do his closing statement. I'll just mention a couple of countries or situations on the African continent where we've had to consider borders or there've been border issues and they're caused directly by colonialism. So if you want to start off with issues between the Europeans, you can definitely talk about the Vashoda incident, there was the Agadir crisis in Morocco of 1911, like all these different issues. Those are uh, colonial issues. Now, if you want to discuss the issues that we have today, obviously you can easily go the Somalia-Kenya maritime border crisis. 
also the NFD crisis. <clears throat> then there's also a small island that is currently disputed to be either Kenya's or Uganda's. Yeah, a small island, but it's also there. Also, it's valuable because of the fishing that happens around it. Then also, we all know the famous case of South Sudan and Sudan, how they were able to split. But then also, crazily enough, there's an area between, I can't remember, I think it's Egypt and which other country is this? Can't remember. Egypt and another country <clears throat> to the south where there's literally a, a piece of land that belongs to none of them. Like, imagine that. <laughs> because of the straight lines that were drawn, the borders, like that land literally belongs to no one internationally. Like, so the question is like, who owns that land? Right? Then we can look into, you know, Northwestern Africa, the issue between Western Sahara and Morocco. Yeah, that's a, then obviously if you want to look into the, the crisis of Biafra, that's also another major, major issue in terms of borders. Cameroon. I was just about to mention Cameroon. South and North Cameroon, right? Sorry, <clears throat> the Anglophone and, uh, and Francophone, uh, those aspects. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, just, 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 just finish. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's all I'd actually wanted to say is that there's so many border disputes in the global South in general even if you want to discuss uh, Kashmir or whatever. But for me, the biggest, the biggest example of a failure of this idea of drawing nations and whatever, Israel and Palestine. <clears throat> for me, that's the biggest one. If we're talking global south, right? Yeah. That yeah. was a major, major failure. And you can see the effects of what's happening today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also wanted to add to that Cameroonian issue in the sense that um, well, I was doing some research on Cameroon at some point. And I came to the understanding that the people of Anglophone Cameroon were actually asked whether they want to be part of Nigeria or they want to rejoin with the Francophone part of Cameroon. And they actually held a referendum and majority won um, stating that they want to be actually joined with the rest of Francophone Cameroon. But now one can see the, the divide that is there and the worst bit is political forces are actually capitalizing on that conflict so as for them to be consolidated in power. Their president has been president has been head of state for, for, for 40 years now, nearly 40 years now. And I think he's been he's lived off from that particular conflict. So we can see how all these things have brought problems that we have right now. And that's not even all. Even I, I usually say um, as continental, as regional. So as national, um, many things that are happening interstate are, all, are also happening within the state. Um, many places right now are actually having border disputes. Where I come, my country <clears throat> happens to be at the border between two different communities. And for more than for nearly 60 years now, especially before every general election, there always has to be violence. There always have, has to be conflicts. Um, in that particular border. And if we trace this keenly, it all goes back to colonialism. So, um, and also another thing I could trace it down to is the failure or, or rather the, the, what can I call it? There was a lot of intransigence by African nationalist leaders with regards to addressing these particular concerns because just like I said earlier, they're the ones who aggravated all these problems that we have. And can you also even talk about how Nairobi's planning was actually originated from a city in the UK. I think that's a subject for another day. <laughs> oh, which wait, which city was it based on? I think it is Sunderland. I Gosh. think so. Yeah, but you see, like this is what we're what this is what we mean. When people <clears throat> I think too many people, including Africans, dismiss <clears throat> the importance of colonialism when having discussions about development. And I keep mentioning this to people half a century is not a long time. Even a century is not a long time, by the way. Giving, like, keeping in mind that colonialism occurred in the latter half of the 19th century and most countries gained their independence in the 60s, 70s, around that period. That is such a long time for someone to have influence, to influence and to exploit 
and to do these things, as we said, city planning, right? There's a reason why, <clears throat> for example, the roads are built the way they are today. There's a reason why the railway lines are built the way they are today and they don't exactly. serve our interests necessarily. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. they don't necessarily serve our interests. So, <clears throat> I mean, even as we close off, um, what I'll just tell people, even I'll just give one last example. I think the biggest example of this entire thing is when you have mass resources like rivers or you have, for example, gold fields that stretch over certain countries into other countries or oil fields that stretch into other countries. The biggest example being what? The Nile River crisis between Egypt and Ethiopia. And this is actually what we're going to be discussing next week. We're going to get some international experts um, to help us discover what's actually going on. But that entire crisis, guys, I'm telling you, they literally allocated over 60% of the Nile, I think it was 66% to Egypt, right? This is in a, the Nile Agreement. <clears throat> I think it was 1952 because there was two. And even going forward, Sudan had a small amount and the, the rest was obviously lost to, due to evaporation. But then Ethiopia was literally given nothing and the rest of the Nile countries... So there's a reason why these countries were rejecting this cooperative framework that they had signed in 2011, right? So, I mean, if you want to discuss, like, you know, what that means, even like from an international perspective, I mean, there's no way to separate colonial structures from the modern day. So anyways, guys, thank you so much. Once again, thank you, Mikhail, for being able to make it today. Um, and apologies if this podcast was slower than usual. Uh, guys, but uh, we'll be just fine for next week. To, uh, next week should be <clears throat> very interesting. We're going to see if we can get proper experts to describe the, the Nile crisis to us in depth and to see if there's any solutions forward for Ethiopia and for <clears throat> Egypt. Thanks once again, guys. Much love. Uh, if you want to support me in my link tree, uh, go ahead and donate. And also please be sure to check out my YouTube channel and my TikTok as well. And I'll see you guys next week.